0: at Mining Dawn, Gordon S, Cindy W, and Paul M. We've got a new guest on the show today. Dan Earl has joined us. Dan is president and CEO of Solaris Resources, a exploration early development stage company focused on copper gold projects throughout Central and South America. Solaris is part of the Augusta Group, and also Solaris is a position held at Smith Weekly Research. The company is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol SLS and on the US OTC Markets under the symbol SLSSF. Dan, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much. Pleased to be here.
0: Well, Dan, it's good to have you on. You are new to the audience. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work in the natural resource sector?
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm the President and CEO of Sloris Resources. Uh, I joined the company in uh, November of last year. I came from the sell-side you know, equity research background, capital markets, so working at a major bank for the last dozen years. And yeah, really established a reputation for uh, covering the um, exploration through development and early stage production names, but picking out within that group. The uh, the multi baggers the ten baggers you know from a very early stage calling world class discoveries and then riding them to those types of returns so that's what that's what built up my reputation and um, you know I saw that same potential here with this Warinza uh, asset when it was in the Equinox portfolio and put my hand up to uh, well more than put my hand up. <laughs> lobby to uh to get myself a, a position within the company where I could expose myself to you know the evolution of this just incredible asset so yeah so that's my background by training I'm a, a mining engineer I worked um prior to that that stint in capital markets in the uh, uh really in the, in the mining sector but specifically the exploration um, part of the uh, part of the part of the sector so um certainly a technical background well suited to the activities of this company at this stage
0: very well and Dan maybe you can just tell us a little bit more about that story you were vice president at TD Securities just prior to joining the company besides the asset was there anything else that just you know sucked you in and brought you over did someone make a call to you how did that go
1: well I you know I'm a technical guy and 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 so for me it's always you know over my career it's always I've always relied on sort of bottom-up analysis so starting with the asset and uh forming a view around that you know, and in this case, you've got a very clear, you know, world-class asset at an early stage of expiration. And obviously, you know, if you're familiar with the Lasan curve and how value is created across the lifecycle of a mining asset, then you know that's exactly the spot that you want to get on board. These, you know, for a very early stage, and then you ride that that value creation. So that's the perspective that I come from. But but certainly the 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 other very obvious part of the attraction here is just the quality of the people involved in this company so this company is managed by the augusta group which has a totally unrivaled track record of value creation in the mining space Um, and so it was um you know and this would total over four and a half billion dollars of exit transactions over the last decade so the opportunity to join and work with the augusta group you know that on its own is very attractive but then also you've got strategic backing from ross Beatty and Lucas Lundin with this company, who are among, together with Richard Warth, the most successful players in the mining industry. Billions of dollars of value creation, each individually over the courses of, of their careers. And then the final aspect is just exposure to you know, David Lowell, who's the world's greatest explorer. Unfortunately, he passed away in May. Um, but, but the flagship asset of this company, Warinza, was his discovery from the early 2000s. And then beyond Warinsa, there's an entire portfolio of his targets for future discoveries, and so this is spread across the Americas. These are uh, grassroots, green fields targets for future discoveries that David handpicked, hand selected, uh, and conceived at the exploration programs for. So, so, th- so all of those things together are just a, a totally unique proposition. You know, from the outside, as I was from TD looking at this and just thinking, well, there's too many uh, each individually, but then together, just totally unique.
0: David was a fantastic guy and huge track record, just an excellent model for everybody in the sector. So just a fantastic gentleman. Well, Dan, you were, you know, you're pretty vocal on Twitter. And uh, like a few other natural resource CEOs out there. What has your attention in the natural resource sector right now, Dan? and, And what is your outlook on the markets for things like precious and base metals?
1: yeah i mean that's a great question because because that's that's ultimately what's going to be the biggest driver of returns in this space is just the macro setup that we have and it's so compelling at the moment you look at like on the monetary and monetary has become uh so important it's become central to really the outlook for you know all these different sectors whether you're looking at equities or rates fx whatever everything seems to be driven now by by monetary you've got an outsized influence uh, relative to kind of historical norms where it'd be more the business cycle and so on. So you, you look at what's going on in the U.S. You've got the balance sheet of the Fed, you know, having gone from like $4 trillion in March to, you know, to over $7 trillion now. And expectations are that this could get to $9 trillion by the end of the year, you know, maybe $12 trillion, uh next year. So that's just a massive expansion in mon- money supply. And the, and what happens is those excess reserves, they lift risk assets at the expense of the U.S. dollar. So you get a sharply weaker U.S. dollar. Um, and the implications of that are very clear. You know, you're going to have a multi-year bull market in hard, hard assets. It's driven by the monetary, it's driven by the business cycle. Of course, we're at the beginning of the business cycle. So, of course, you know, that tends to favor coming immediately out of the recession that we have now, that, that tends to first favor precious metals, but then it very quickly rotates as the business cycle catches up to the monetary stimulus that's in place, the fiscal stimulus that we see coming through, you know, lagging that somewhat. Uh, as the business cycle catches up to that, then, of course, there's a rotation into hard assets. Which are more exposed to kind of industrial growth and so on. So we've got, you know, we've just got the perfect setup here. I mean, it, it's, I, 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 like to, I like to put things in the perspective of kind of historical experiences for people uh, because, it, you know, it's then easier to, that, that's an easier context to, you know, to understand how things may evolve. If you go back to the last cycle, you know, coming out of the great financial crisis, you know, we, we had, you know, basically a doubling of, of the Fed balance sheet. You know, and gold prices doubled at that time. Um, we had the, the copper price quadruple, quadruple because, um, uh, you know, because of how depressed copper got and then how, how far it had to go to incentivize new supply to come on to feed the business cycle. And you've got a similar setup this time around, although this time I would argue an even stronger case to be made for specific, you know, future facing commodities like copper that are going to benefit from these really dramatic you know, kind of once-in-a-lifetime technological trends that we're seeing with electrification and so on. From a high level, uh, you you have to feel good, very good about the outlook, both on the precious metals and on the base metal side.
0: A set of challenges ahead for places like the U.S. and and really globally, too, because the dollar has such an influence around the globe still. Exciting time to be alive uh, at the same time. A little bit scary with what's going on uh, from not only economic perspective and, and the uh, you know the Treasury uh, ordering up a lot of paper and a lot of ink to uh, keep their printing presses running full steam twenty four seven, but certainly the yeah. uh, the social situation <laughs> well, as well man, is is, que- is questionable and difficult to, uh, yeah, to choke down.
1: It, it is, and then I'd add in another element to that, which is which is you know also very worrying, which is just the political dysfunction that we have. And, and so we're not getting the, uh, the kind of the appropriate fiscal response that we need. And what's happening is, is, is the Fed is to, having to do more, more of the job, more of the heavy lifting to get the economy going again. And they don't have tools that are well suited to that. So the result of that is that we get this incredible asset inflation, you know, which we're seeing in the undermining of, of, of the currency. Um, you know, as a result. So that, you know, that, that's kind of the third element here, which is really, uh, it, it's disappointing, but it also, you know, I mean, it, it we have to accept things as they are, and it has very, you know, significant implications for, you know, these hard assets that we're exposed to.
0: Yeah, it's tough, and, and we can't have growth forever, as you know, and the fiscal discipline—it's—it's it's going to be painful, and I think that's coming. So I think you and I both are going to be able to see that. We're young enough, I think we're going to see some interesting times ahead. Well, come back to the Augusta Group for just a moment, Dan. Sure. Uh, just talk briefly, a little bit more about that, you know, umbrella, and also talk about the companies that's under that umbrella.
1: Absolutely. So the the Augusta Group was founded by um, the, you know, its its principal, Richard Wark. Um, and so Richard Bork is the executive chairman of Solaris, and then he occupies a similar role with the other companies that are within that umbrella. And he's amassed just an incredible, i, I we argue it's an unrivaled track record uh, for surfacing, creating value uh, within the mining sector, specifically within the niche of exploration and development stage assets. And so I'm, as I mentioned in my intro, you know that track record totals over $4.5 billion of exit transactions over the last decade. Um, and so these these were transactions like building up the value and selling Ventana Gold in 2011 for $1.6 billion, uh, building up the value and selling Augusta Resource Corp for $670 million in 2014, uh, co-founding Equinox Gold in 2017, which is now over a $3 billion company, a mid-tier gold producer, and then most recently selling Arizona Mining for $2.1 billion um, in 2018, after building up the value, these are all these are all assets that we took from a grassroots exploration stage, uh, built up the value, took them through economic studies, and then sold them on to partners who wanted to bring them through to production. So we've been true to um, you know our, our, our roots and our core skill set at, at the Augusta Group, which is very much in this particular niche that uh, Solaris fits perfectly into. So the, the portfolio companies uh, today are, you know, Solaris obviously is a, a principal focus of the company. But then we also have uh, Titan Mining, which is a uh, which which is a, a U.S. Uh, focused mining and exploration company. It just just announced an exciting acquisition of a gold asset, gold exploration asset in Southern Nevada. And then we've added another gold company which we're in the process, the transaction hasn't closed yet, but of taking over the management of, uh, called Bullfrog Gold, which again is in Southern Nevada. And this is a strategic partnership with Barrick Gold, where we took an an asset in uh, Bullfrog that was stranded, put it together with an asset or two-thirds of the same asset, which was in Barrick, to create something really special there. Um, So those are the portfolio companies that we have today.
0: Excellent. Let's get on to uh, Solaris here. Give us just a high-level quick overview, Dan, and then I want to get into the capital structure and then we'll start getting into the details of the individual projects.
1: So Solaris is a copper-gold growth and discovery story. This this was spun out of Equinox Gold in 2018. and Of course, Equinox is totally consumed with their mission of becoming a leading mid-tier gold producer. This is under Ross Beattie, uh, where they're going from 200,000 ounces last year to over a million ounces. Of production over the next couple of years, and so what they did with Solaris is they partnered with the Augusta Group to surface the value in what they conceived of at the time in 2018 as a, as a copper exploration and development uh, portfolio. We've now added another dimension with with some of the recent work that we've done, which is the gold potential. That's why we refer it to refer to it now as a as a copper gold portfolio. Um, So the company, it's it's obviously backed by, it's managed by the Augusta Group, but then backed by Equinox Gold as a strategic shareholder, uh, Ross Beattie, both through Equinox and then directly, and then Lucas Lundin. And and Lucas Lundin's involvement is really important because of the Lundin brand's significance in Ecuador. This is a company that's really responsible for opening the mining sector in Ecuador in 2014 with the acquisition of the del Norte project. And then bringing that through to production in a responsible fashion, both from an environmental and social perspective, which was critical in generating the positive sentiment towards the expansion of the mining sector. And particularly like the foreign direct investment to make that expansion possible in, in Ecuador and cementing in place the support and the political opening for companies like ours to now follow through with the next series of projects. Um, so that's sort of where we're positioned in terms of the backing. In terms of the asset, Warenza is our flagship asset. This was a David Lowell discovery. Uh, but then another important part of this story, which we'll get to in the coming years, is the exploration portfolio that we have in behind Warenza. These are projects that were hand-selected by David Lowell, the world's greatest explorer, um, and conceived of by David as his targets for future discoveries. So certainly those are projects that we're very excited about, even if the market isn't focused on them you know, in, in this moment currently.
0: Talk about the shares outstanding here, the cash on hand, and how long you see that cash balance will carry the company from here.
1: Starting with the cash, you know, so as of the um, the end of the second quarter, we had uh, 25, a little over 25 million Canadian of cash on the balance sheet. So as it's as it sits today, we're probably around 23 million dollars. Um, that 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 funding that we put in place in in this company was was good for executing uh, with a buffer. Our 12-month exploration program, and that that exploration program was three drill rigs uh, drilling a total of 40,000 meters of drill core at Morinza, and so that would take us through into the into the third quarter of next year. So we're we're, we're fully funded for that program. We've got additional cash that'll come in uh, with the exercise of Equinox's uh, listed warrants. So those are warrants that trade on the TSX and the NYSE. They're not tied to our share price. They're tied to Equinox's share price. And they're exercisable above $15 a share Canadian, which is, you know, obviously they're trading in the money at the moment. If those are exercised and they're due in October of next year, that would bring in a further $26 million um, into our treasury. And in return, we'd we'd issue another four and a half million shares. So, you know, we're fully funded as it stands with our current expiration program, but then we've got additional capital coming into the company um, to put us in an even stronger position and, and, and take that funding you know, further out into into the coming years, um, in terms of our shares outstanding, we're sitting at about 88 million on on a basic, and then 134 million uh, fully diluted, inclusive of those warrants. And um, it is a relatively tight share structure. We've we've got approximately 70% of our shares that are held by our strategic backers and insiders of the company. So Equinox Gold sitting at about 29%, Richard Warwick, our executive chairman, 21%. Uh, Lucas Lendine, Ross Beattie, you know, the rest of the management team and David Lowell's estate, you know, making up the balance of that 70%. So the float here on this company, um, you're, you're basically looking at about 30% of the shares outstanding. And those were largely the shares that were spun out, you know, in the formation of this company back in 2018 to Equinox shareholders at the time. It trades well as a result of that structure, but, you know, we've been able to create liquidity by, uh, you know, the right way, which is with our share price going up. So if you look at the actual dollars that we're trading, um, you know, we're, we're, we're coming on nearly a million dollars a day of, of trading, which is which is enough liquidity to start bringing in um, some of the sizable institutions and so on. So we're not we're not confined or constrained uh, in terms of our audience by liquidity anymore, as, as we might have been months ago.
0: Do you guys see, with those warrants likely coming in October next year, do you guys see in the midterm between now and then with the share price that you guys will probably do a capital raise, or can you just speak to what the plan is for carrying the, the cash out?
1: So we're fully funded right now, so there's certainly no thought of, of, of doing any kind of a public equity financing um, right now. Um, as we get into you know next year, Q2, Q3, that's when it may become relevant, we'll have to see how things evolve with those warrants uh you know potentially coming in if we if we see that if we see that those are being exercised in advance of when they're due, then that would only drag out that funding you know further potentially into uh twenty twenty two and beyond yeah, it's certainly not something that we're looking at in the short term,
0: yeah, certainly, you guys are set up pretty well, and you could potentially carry all the way through. so good on you for the structure on that setup now, Dan, just on the cash outlook. Besides the exploration programs, and I know this is important to our audience, the company's G&A overhead expenses expected on an annual basis going forward. Can you just speak to your guys' G&A burn quarterly or annually?
1: On an annual basis, you're looking at about a million and a half Canadian. I think it's competitive. We don't have a big um, big footprint in terms of our G&A. We, we're certainly not trying to minimize um, G&A. We want to invest in, in G&A where it's helpful. Uh, In terms of advancing some of our social objectives and, uh, you know, public relationship objectives in Ecuador, because that's obviously a key priority for the company is to maintain the very strong social license that we have. So we're not, you know, as a management team, we're not approaching this with the objective of really minimizing that that G&A so much as we are delivering the kind of important outcomes that we, you know, that we need to achieve. That's very much the focus. Now, that's not to say that we, you know, that there's any largesse there. I think when you, you know, when you consider that number in comparison to our peers, we're, we're doing pretty well.
0: Agreed. Absolutely. And Dan, just talk a little bit about, you know, the major shareholders you mentioned. Come back and just share with the audience, you know, where you are as far as your shareholding goes. And can you speak to maybe your cost basis currently, or maybe the average cost basis of all the major insiders?
1: I can't speak to everyone, but but certainly for myself, I'm I'm sitting somewhere around four or 5%. And then Richard Warwick, you know, so our executive chairman, he's sitting at 21%. And our cost basis you know for both of us would be about 80 cents. Now Equinox Gold is the other major shareholder. Uh their cost base is lower than that. Obviously, they spun the assets out and retained an ownership interest. So those, if you want to think of those as being free shares, they're they're essentially free shares if you were to calculate it on a cost basis perspective. But they've participated according to their pro rata in the financings that have been done. You know, so most recently obviously the financing was at 80 cents. Uh, prior to when this company came public prior to drill results and so on. So I don't think I don't know that it's particularly relevant, quite frankly, because, you know, I I don't expect that any of those shares that are held by our strategic supporters and insiders are going to see the light of day until the whole company is eventually sold down the line if we deliver on our
0: objectives. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And let's move into the projects, Dan. So I want to get to Warenza here in a moment. um, because I know we got some more to discuss on that. But let's go through the other projects, maybe starting with La Verde tech resources. Maybe go through the projects, talk about the Earn and J V status on most of those and the plans for these projects.
1: Absolutely. So La Verde is I think it's a this is a quality project, you know. So you've got a substantial resource base there, which is You know 740 million tons give or take at 0.4 percent copper uh sitting in an open pit with a strip ratio of about two and a half to one um it's well located in mexico on infrastructure four-lane highway you've got power lines actually running through the claim package and it's not far from pacific ports that you'd be using to get your concentrate out to buyers in asia um, so, you know, well-situated, substantial resource, decent grade and so on. But for us, in comparison to Warinsa, this can't be a focus for us at the moment. Warenza is nearly double the grade of this and has far, far greater size potential as well. So it sits there. It's it's an asset that we like. We're certainly not interested. We've had people approach us about, um, you know, potentially spinning this off or selling it. We're, we're certainly not interested in doing that. It's going to have a lot of value for us. Um, but it 's not a focus at the moment we 're happy to hold on to this asset to see the copper price evolve over the, co- over the coming you know, mega cycle that we have with electrification, which really starts to kick in and the supply demand gap open up um, you know around the middle of this decade and that 's when we 're going to see much higher copper prices and where an asset like this goes from being a- an asset that 's comparable to what the peer group would have. So these are any of the listed peers would have similar assets to this and market caps in the range of, say, $100 to $200 million. That's what it goes from being, a you know, a, a, let's call it an average asset to an exceptional asset when you have copper prices north of $4. And so that's what we'll hold on to this asset for. It's not a focus in, in terms of any activity with the company. We're very much focused on rents at the moment. And then you get into the more exciting part of the portfolio for us. These are all uh, David Lowell's, you know, targets for future discoveries. So Ricardo is another joint venture that we have. Uh, This is joint venture to Freeport McMoRan, which is one of the largest copper mining companies in the world. Um, And it's a claim package that sits just south of Chuquicamata. It's well known in geological circle. Chuquicamata, to begin with, is is one of the uh, largest and highest grade copper mines in the world. Okay, And then it's well known in geological circles that the other half of the ore body has been faulted off. And David's hypothesis was that it was faulted off down to the south. And so he's got that that land, a very large land package down to the south. Now, it is difficult exploration. You're talking about drilling deep holes and they're technically challenging holes through difficult rock conditions, gravels and structures and, and so on to get down to the target horizon. Um, for this potential ore body, and that's why it's partnered with with Freeport, who's got, uh, you know, a much deeper budget than we have and, and more, more you know, better suited to that type of exploration, which is, you know, high risk, high reward, high expense uh, type exploration. But we're certainly happy to have them spending on the project. They're going to be spending six to seven million dollars by the end of this year and, um, you know, and to, and to retain some exposure to, uh, you know, a discovery there and then we've got uh, two projects in Peru that we're very excited about these are joint ventures with a, uh, a a private company where we can earn up to up to 75% of each of them the first um that we'll get to will be capricho um and this is a, a you know a potential porphyry discovery it's set within the southern peru uh, porphyry trend so near mines world class mines like Las bombas um, you know, Hikiro, which is in First Quantum, Las Bombas is owned by the Chinese, developed by the Chinese. Uh, Constancia, which is owned by Hud is nearby as well. Um, so it's right in the right trend. Huge alteration footprint um, had never been drilled because there was no porphyry exposed at surface until a, a recent landslide exposed a porphyry outcrop. And then we've gone in and sampled this, and you've got high grade copper porphyry for over 300 meters. So it's a walk-up drill target, um, you know, an, an absolute no-brainer. We're in the process of community consultation right now. And when we've solidified community support for exploration activities, then that's when we move forward immediately and, 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 and drill this and try and establish a discovery there. Um, and then PACO work goes similar to that in the sense that you've got direct evidence at surface of a substantial um, deposit, um, yet it's undrilled. So in this case, different type of deposit, a carbonate replacement deposit, um, so similar class of deposit as uh, you know Arizona Mining had with their Taylor Discovery, which they sold on to Cell to 32 for a little over $2 billion a couple of years ago within our Augusta Group. Um, so we, we certainly have a lot of experience with this type of, uh, of deposit. And, and here you've got the mineralization outcropping over about two kilometers linearly. And then it's completely undrilled. So it's another walk up drill target for us once we've completed the community consultation work that we need to do as part of our CSR, our forward, uh, you know, CSR forward approach to, to exploration that we have at this company.
0: And uh, how about Tamarugo? Can you just touch on that with Freeport?
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this is one that David Lowell was, was particularly excited about. And this is, uh, you know, Chile is obviously where he made his his greatest discoveries. You know, the greatest of them all being Escondida, the largest copper mine in the world, more than twice the size of the next largest copper mine. That was David's discovery. And, and that was through the evolution of uh, his porphyry copper model. So he co-developed the um, and defined for the first time porphyry copper deposits, which are the dominant. Uh, deposit type for copper, accounting for 60% of all of the world's copper. Um, and he, you know, went out and applied that model directly in the high deserts of of, of Chile to make a, a whole series of discoveries. And of course, when everyone caught on to this, they then copied copied him. And, you know, and the opportunities to do that were, you know, were then exhausted. But he continued to make discoveries. And Escondida was one of these by evolving that model. So instead of looking for direct evidence of the porphyry, he evolved it to then look for indirect evidence of the porphyry. And that was essentially the, uh, you know, in simple terms, the discovery at Escondida and, and a series of other discoveries. Um, but but David never stopped innovating. In, innovation was the key to David's continued success over a 50 year career, where he has discoveries from beginning to end. Um, and, and so this Tamarugo project is just the further evolution. So it's, it's not looking for the indirect evidence, but it's, you know, one step beyond that. The indirect evidence of the indirect um, here at Tamaruco and there's very strong evidence um that there's an underlying uh, copper system here. It's a walk-up drill target. We can drive the rig right on top of the property. And uh we would have already done this. We would have drilled this property uh in 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 uh in the second quarter um of this year if it weren't for the COVID outbreak, you know, constraining our ability to get onto the property and get into this part of Chile where where things were particularly acute. Um, So, yeah, we're very much looking forward to drilling this property. It's right in the heart of Chilean copper country. These are, you know, the biggest and the highest grade deposits in the world in this part of Chile. But obviously, you know, not a focus for most juniors because the land is locked up by the seniors and has been for decades.
0: Can you just speak on some of these outside Warenza? Is this something you guys are going to start to attack uh, maybe next year? It just kind of depends on what happens at Warenza going forward. What's the plan?
1: Yeah, well, there's a huge effort at Warenza to really ramp up the pace of our activities at Warenza. And there's, a you know, just a, a a large number of targets that we need to get to at Warenza. So it's it's really, you know, a case of just resources being stretched in the immediate, uh, you know, in the immediate, like sort of short term. Uh, but as we ramp up, then we'll free up capacity to start getting into these other projects. Like something like Tamborugo is so excep- exceptional that we would have gotten to it in Q2, like I said, if it wasn't for the COVID outbreak. So we'll certainly, um, you know, make the capacity to get into that when we can. And then with the Peruvian projects, you know, the community consultation has to come first. That's 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 our mantra here at Solaris is to make sure we've solidified our social relationships with local communities before we go in and, um, and um, uh, you know, try and engage in any exploration activities. So when that's in place and that'll dictate the timeline, then that's when we would move to uh, exploration activities on the Peruvian projects.
0: Well, that sounds like a pretty full pipeline and certainly some optionality going back to La Verde. Copper prices keep moving higher, uh, a lot of leverage, a lot of torque here. Absolutely. Well, Dan, let's move into uh, Warenza. Uh, maybe yep. maybe just touch it off here by talking about the recent drill results that just came out and the next plans for the project.
1: So this is a project that was discovered in the early 2000s and then uh and basically hasn't been drilled since. A, you know, Ecuador wasn't particularly favorable for mining until 2014 when Lundin began to open it up. And then there was a particularly acute, you know, social situation on this project where, um, basically, it prevented the continued exploration of the project until, you know, we were able to come in and establish a dialogue, get to the bottom of the the social issues, and then resolve them, and then build up, uh, you know, kind of a strong uh, social contract. Um, which you know has now been formalized in, in, in what's called an impact and benefits agreement with the local communities. And that's really what provided the foundation to restart activities. So here you have a situation where you've got a discovery and all of the drilling from nearly 20 years ago. Um, and then we've come in, our first drill hole on the project was, was announced August 10th. And that was an exceptional interval right from surface, 567 meters of 1% copper equivalent. And that was consistent you know so obviously long interval high grade but then consistent mineralization all the way down the hole so it wasn't a situation where we were stretching grade from depth back up the hole it was actually you know uh consistent mineralization all the way through which is exactly what you want if you're if you're if you're looking for uh, a porphyry deposit the first thing is you want it to be open pit not underground most of the recent porphyry discoveries have been underground but an open pit is vastly preferable because of the the lower costs involved the, lo- the lower lead times the lower technical risk, et cetera it appeals to a much broader audience. Um, but then you want the grade, if you have an open pit to be close to surface so you can start mining in high grade material and get you know really rapid cap- uh, capital payback on on this type of an asset. so w- we couldn't have done better, I don't think <laughs> on, on that first drill hole five hundred sixty seven meters one percent that was back in August. Um, and then we um, and then we followed that up with with a series of holes. The, the, the second hole essentially following up on that first one, where we extended the mineralization to 660 meters of 0.97. So essentially the same grade, but a longer interval. And then with the third hole, we moved over 400 meters to the east side of the central zone, and then cut a monster interval of over a thousand meters of 0.7 copper equivalent. And just to get put the grades in perspective, you know, the average mine grade last year for open pit copper porphyries was less than 0.4%. So we're coming on double, you know, if not, uh, you know, triple those kinds of grades with some of these intervals. Um, so exceptional stuff, right from surface, consistent mineralization right the way through. but the part that 's impressive to us is 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 are not the the meters and and the grades which investors focus on because this is at such an early stage of exploration what 's actually more important to us as explorers is is focusing on the geology that we 're seeing and the alteration that we 're seeing and the and the types of things that we can pull from that drill core to try and vector towards the core of this system where we think that we're going to find the longest intervals of of the highest grades. And that's very much to play for in the future and will be the subject of, you know, kind of our continuing drilling here.
0: Yeah, lots of good progress out of the gate. Now with the depths that you have out there, you guys, this last hole that came in was just over a thousand meters. Do you guys plan to drill deeper than that in the future, or is that just sufficient depth at this point to really expand the trend, tying in central with east and west?
1: Yeah, so so 1,000 meters, but bear in mind that's starting right from surface. So I think that 1,000 meter interval, I mean, uh, that basically began at 4 meters depth. So this is coming right to surface. So it's not like we're talking about any underground situation here. This would all easily fit into an open pit domain. And the reason we were limited to 1,000 meters was that was just the capacity of our drill rig. So we're drilling right. with machines, which are called KD-1000s, with the 1,000 being the depth capacity of the rig. Um, and so we weren't planning on going any deeper than that, but obviously <laughs> this interval was mineralized all the way, all the way to the bottom. So um, we're actually going to be bringing in more powerful rigs in the future to just, to just have a look at, um, at what's down there. It's, it's not um, our, our original design for this drill program was just to drill the central zone down to 1,000 meters. That would be, you know, the 40,000 meters. Three drill rigs, uh, we can fully drill the footprint. Of this central system, which currently the resource occupies about half of the footprint um, laterally, um, down to about 200 meters. And so our objective here with the 40,000 meter program was to drill the full footprint, so to double it laterally, and then take it down to 1,000 meters from the 200 meters. So take it take it up, you know, five times that depth um so that so that was the original intention here, but now obviously, with the results we we've got to go and test the uh, the further depth extent and we'll do that with a more powerful rig
0: okay, yeah, there's a lot of room for potential here, which I, I think the market's starting to see. Maybe just talk briefly so there's a gold component here, talk about those gold targets, Dan, how do those fit into the plan, and what's your expectation there?
1: I'm really excited about this. I'm a a huge believer in, you know, hard currencies like gold and the long term outlook, I think, has never been more favorable for gold than than the setup that we have at the moment. Yeah, this is based on sampling data that we did in in the second half of uh, last year. So an extensive uh, soil sampling program. And and what that yielded was a series of anomalies, uh, three anomalies, um, the largest of which we call Kaya. And that's the southernmost anomaly, so closest to our Rinza porphyries, probably about three or four kilometers away. And, th- and that anomaly is, is large scale. It's, it's four and a half kilometers east west by four kilometers north south. And there's an awful lot of gold which is shedding off of that anomaly, which is collecting and concentrating in the drainages, which has actually been the subject of historical plaster mining. So there's no current active plaster mining, but there's certainly evidence that there was historical mining of the gold that's coming off of that you know, very large anomaly that we have. So there's a, a certainly a significant size gold system there. Um, it's in an area of cover, so there's no rock exposed at surface. So we've, we've got a geophysical program ongoing and have had ongoing for the last several weeks, which is going to help add definition to that anomaly. And then uh, with that additional layer of data on top of the soil sampling that we have then we're going to have a definite drill target that we can get in and test the potential for a discovery there. We're very excited about it.
0: Looking forward to seeing what comes out of that. And then just back to the copper side, just briefly, maybe you can speak to the what you guys would expect for recoveries uh, in a scenario in the future based on these types of deposits. Uh, is it in the mid 80% area for recoveries, Dan? Maybe you can just talk about that for a moment.
1: Yeah, typically, you know, copper porphyries are going to be in the 80s somewhere. Uh, in this case, what we have is a very high-grade uh, copper porphyry, so obviously more copper, higher concentration of copper in the rock makes it easier to recover. So we'd expect to be you know, in, in the high 80s, if not in the low 90s. Just as a guess, the only metallurgical test work that was done is quite dated, but that showed low 90s kind of recoveries for for copper. We'll certainly be updating that with a much more comprehensive and modern Uh, Testing program, but but as a guest at this stage, that's where I expect that we would be.
0: And uh, talk about just the local infrastructure for a moment, Dan, and also the status of the uh, the road construction that's coming into the site.
1: Yeah, it's an important point and a surprising one. I mean, most people assume because Ecuador is a a new, very much a new mining jurisdiction, really only opening up in the last few years, that the infrastructure would be, um, you know, essentially non-existent or near to. But it's actually the opposite. So, in our area, um, in the Samora River uh, volcanic belt that we have running roughly north south, we actually have a highway uh, running lar- essentially up and down the belt on the shoulder of the belt. And so, this is, this is the uh, primary access that mines like Fruta del Norte and Mirador. Mirador is the largest. Mine in ecuador it's a, a large scale open pit copper gold mine that's that's operated by the chinese and it's immediately to the north of frida del Norte, which is lending gold's uh, large scale underground gold mine um, and that's the access they, they use and that's the uh the access that um, you know that uh, um, that that also provides for the uh getting the concentrate out to the uh, Pacific ports. Um, So that highway, you know, we benefit from that that same piece of infrastructure. It runs up and down the belt into our area as well. We've got a road connecting out to that highway, which will be completed in October. Um, So that's a 22-kilometer road. It's a joint project with the uh, municipal government. And that'll drastically improve the logistics um, into this project. Um, And then in terms of power, you you know, you're blessed again. There's um, uh, high-tension power lines supplying cheap, clean uh, consistent hydroelectric power uh, from the grid that's, that, are, that are largely running up and down that that highway, so we 'll when the time comes eventually be able to uh, to tap into that and then of course, the other key key piece of infrastructure that you need for a mining project and particularly one of these copper mining projects is water you know and so in chile it 's just a water scarcity is a massive issue, actually a constraining issue on the growth of the of uh, of the copper mining industry in that country, and so companies are having to build, like for example, desalination plants and pipelines to get uh, desalinated water up up from the coast to the, to the projects hundreds of kilometers away. But in but in this part of Ecuador, and and you know, in in most of Ecuador, you've got abundant fresh water, um, and so you're not dealing with any you know you're not dealing with any sort of a situation like that. So all of these those three things together, the water, the power and the and the highway physical access um, those are your you know the big ticket items that really drive up the capex those are your kind of your first order um, you know principal um, drivers of, of of capex and um and those are just naturally in existence in in the area of our project certainly
0: Ecuador's uh, blessed uh, like Panama to plenty of water fantastic
1: absolutely. for these oh, countries absolutely. that
0: have that ability to collect.
1: Well, that's exactly right. It, you know, it's so you need it for the project. So there's that, but then it's also, you know, you you don't want water scarcity like you have in in many countries in Peru and Chile and Argentina and Mexico and so on because then you've got a, you know, a competing use uh, issue which generates social tension and it's just all around a bad a bad place to be.
0: Certainly. Well, Dan, the company has been vocal about the local community and the government relations. Does the company see that the local community and the Ecuador government is fully supportive and on board with the work you guys are doing?
1: Oh, absolutely. So the the local communities are actually our partners in the project. So they're you know we have a strategic alliance that we formed uh, with the two local indigenous communities, which are the traditional owners of the lands here, um, to you know to move this project forward. And that came about after a process of free, prior, and informed. Uh, consultation leading to consent that was formalized in a memorandum of understanding, which established the strategic alliance. And we've since grown that relationship to the point where we recently announced uh, an impact and benefits agreement. Um, and so this actually provides certainty of that community support and the terms of that community support for the life cycle of, of this project. So, not just from the exploration stage, but all the way through production. You know, know, construction, production, and all the way to closure. Um, So that's absolutely critical. Look, it it doesn't matter where you are in the world now. I think you need uh, more and more. You 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 know, you need to have firm social license uh, for these projects to move forward, and that's very much the situation that we have today. So, so those are the local communities. The the government at the at the national level in Ecuador is overwhelmingly uh, supportive of the mining industry. Um, this is the, you know they made the strategic decision that uh, that they needed to grow the mining sector to offset the decline of of the oil sector in two thousand and fourteen when the oil price really started to to come down obviously earlier this year, the oil price was negative, so it just reinforces the uh, um, you know that uh, the, the correctness of that decision in, in in their minds. This is a dollarized economy that we 're talking about in Ecuador. And so with the dollarized economy, you need to fund it in dollars, obviously. And the main sources of funding would be issuing debt, um, you know, FDI, so dollars coming in into the country. And then, of course, exports in dollars. And so oil oil and gas, in, or oil in particular, in decline needs to be offset. And they've done that with um, exports of, of copper and gold, which are going to continue to grow. And and together with that, obviously, you get the foreign direct investment um, from these foreign mining companies coming in and building these uh building these projects and conducting exploration and so on, so that 's very firm support there's there's overwhelming support you know like ninety seven percent support for for the for the dollar um, in in the country and as a result of that support, you know you 've then got uh this strong support for the kinds of things that contribute to the functioning of dollarized economy like the mining sector and so on. Um, there are provincial level issues in the country. So, in particular, in Azaway Province, you've got a strong anti-mining sentiment, uh, which certainly affects some of the projects in, in that province. But um, in our area, we're in the province of Morona Santiago, and in Zamora Chinchipe, you know, where you have, which is the province immediately to the south of us, you've got strong support for mining, and that's why you're seeing mining projects move forward. del Norte and Mirador both went into production in Zamora Chinchipe last year and then obviously we're active on our project in Marana Santiago to the north
0: you know, you're absolutely right, Dan. I mean, it's highly important for a country like Ecuador and, and many many countries in Central and South America. Mining has got to be part of an economic solution, and without it, it's really not going to work. So I think that that's important. And you know, I think investors still, many investors, not all of them, but still really discount Ecuador. And I think that discount will certainly change over time here, and as yeah. this you know bull market starts to run. Well, let's talk about the market cap. You've guys got about a three hundred and eighty million Canadian market cap. You know, not far off capstone mining, which as you know yeah. is a copper producer. You've got market cap bigger than taseco mines, another yeah. copper producer, and you're near twice the size of Copper Mountain, another producer. You're actually bigger than Jose Maria, which is a development peer. Yeah. What are your thoughts on valuation? And do you see Warenza is really shaping up to be potentially here a ten billion plus pound copper deposit?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it would just be pure conjecture. I mean, I mean, you know, to talk about the potential scale, but certainly if you look at the footprint of the RINSA system of porphyries, it's, it's essentially a five kilometer long trend of porphyries that come right to surface. And so you can see that, you know, in the maps that we provide with our press releases in our presentation. And so that's the kind of footprint that you need for that scale of a porphyry system. You know, so that would be on par with something like if you're familiar with Northern Dynasty and their pebble deposit in Alaska, just on in terms of the pure, you know, if you're just looking at the deposit and forgetting about the permitting issues and, you know, and the history of like uh, political noise around that asset, you know, that porphyry trend is about five kilometers long. And that constitutes, you know, six, seven billion dollars, six, six to seven billion tons of, of, of you know, relatively high grade copper mineralization there. Uh, Oya Tolgoi, for example, in Mongolia, similar sort of scale, similar kind of footprint. So we're talking about the footprint here that could support, uh, you know, multiple billion uh, tons of, of, uh, of uh, porphyry mineralization. It's all to play for. It's all got to be drilled and proven up. It's too early, certainly, to start talking about, um, you know, the, what the tonnage will be. But but certainly you see the scope for it to, you know, eventually get into that order of magnitude with the footprint that you see today. Um, in, in terms of the, the, the valuation, there's a long way to go. Um, if we continue to uh, deliver drill results like this, then you'll have a world class, possibly one of the best uh, copper deposits, undeveloped copper deposits that's not held by the, uh, the, the global supermajors in the world. And uh, you know, and that and that and that would have a multiple of the of the current value. You can look at a, another development peer like Soul Gold, and they're far more advanced than us. Their discovery was made in 2013. They've drilled you know over well nearly three billion tons of resources. They're working on a pre-feasibility and so on. So they're far more advanced than us, but they have well over a billion dollar market cap. I'm not seeing that there's any uh, top side constraint on our valuation at this stage. And and that's reflected. It's starting to be reflected, actually, in, in some of the uh, sell side research target prices that you see out there. We had TD Bank, one of the leading banks in terms of mining research and coverage of the mining sector, uh, put a target on us initially when they launched of $6.50. You know, so we're trading at about $4 at the moment or a little over $4.00. And then after the uh, most recent drill results, they upped that to 750, so certainly a lot of upside, um, you know, just based on the results that they've seen to date, let alone any future results.
0: Yeah, certainly pretty interesting how it's come together here, and, you know, very little work's been done, but it's shaping up already, and you have an existing resource,
1: I think it's inferred. but. Uh, it, it's always, you know, this is honestly the way that it works. I mean, it it it's what we always see when there's a world-class discovery. Is, you know, I mean, this is defined by the uh, the Lasan curve, which I always I always provide as a and all and always used as a, as a reference for people to help contextualize uh, the trading around these early stage stories where you don't have an economic study to define the value. Um, but if you look at the Lasan curve, then it's very clear that all of the value is created. During the expiration stage, you know that's where you're adding, you know, you're adding, you're adding the tons and you're adding the value to the project. Um, and then as you move through feasibility and so on, um, you know, it's it's not it's not until you get uh, you kind of enter a lull, and it's not until you get into the, you know, post-financing stage and construction and advanced construction and coming into production, that you get back to you know the kind of highs that you set during the expiration stage. So we're in the sweet spot of the Lasan curve. We're adding all of the value right now, which you can see reflected in the market. And so this is not unusual. This is exactly the way that it typically works.
0: Yes, and you mentioned Northern Dynasty, and I understand uh, Mr. Lowell also looked at that deposit as well and has a a fairly high opinion of that deposit now. Yeah. Maybe speak to just coming back to valuation for a moment. It it appears that the other assets that Solaris has is is really not even being considered, you know, to some degree. And then also, you know, internally, I know you guys talk about this, but what is the goal? What's your guys' expectation as far as size?
1: Oh, in terms of the size? Well, I, you know... so we don't have a goal. I mean, our goal. Our goal is to bring this project to its full fruition. I mean, that that's not defined in terms of a specific tonnage or grade or you know net asset value for the project. We're going to take it where it goes. So certainly our objective is going to be to fully define with this initial drill program the central porphyry, and you know, and so that entails the, the current resource is about half of the footprint of that central porphyry drilled down to 200 meters. And like I said, we're gonna we're gonna fully define it. So we'll take a you know, we'll drill out the full footprint, um, so essentially double the double the uh, the existing drill coverage, and then we'll extend that drilling from 200 meters down to 1,000 meters and beyond. So that's what we'll do with the initial program. But then the but then the bigger picture here is the rest of the porphyry trend. So we certainly have a similar size footprint and slightly higher values at surface at our west porphyry. It's under cover, so it wasn't a target of drilling for David Lowell. David Lowell's discovery was the outcrop, and then he drilled around that. Um, But at west, we were able to come in and strip off some of the cumber and expose the underlying porphyry. We've sampled that, you know, and and it returned a sample of uh, over 1% copper over about 81 meters that we did the channel sample. So there's a high grade porphyry there. It's yet to be drilled, but certainly that'll be a target for us. And we'll aim to at least, you know, kind of duplicate if we're successful uh, what we have at central at west. And then you've got the east Uh, porphyry which has a larger footprint maybe slightly lower surface values and then and then the south porphyry which again has a similar footprint as central with the strongest values at surface of any of the porphyry so so there's a lot to do even just within the copper porphyries before you get on to these gold targets and as i said we've got three large scale gold targets that we're going to be getting to as quickly as we can Um, so there's a lot to do here and where that takes us in terms of tonnage and, and asset value and so on is um, is anyone's guess. But um, but certainly we're optimistic.
0: Well, and I'd point out, too, that all of this is constrained within, what, five to eight kilometers south, central, east, west. And the gold targets are all within an eight kilometer radius. Is that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's basically five by five for the, uh, for the porphyry trend inclusive of south, which is, you know, about four kilometers to the south of the east porphyry. And then, you know, the southernmost of the gold targets is about three kilometers to the northeast. And then, you know, going further north from there, you have the other two gold anomalies. So, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's pretty compact. But you got to remember, this is just an incredibly fertile and well-endowed belt. You know, so immediately on our, on our, uh, on our western border, you have the uh, St. Carlos and Panazza porphyries, which are owned by the Chinese. This would be sort of the follow-on project from their Mirador project, which went into production uh, late last year, San Carlos and Panata themselves are over a billion tons at .6, so high-grade, you know, very large-scale open open pit deposits right on our just outside of our uh, of our property boundary. So this is a very, very fertile, uh, well-endowed uh, belt, you know, which, given the history of Ecuador, we're just opening up in 2014. We're at the beginning of kind of the surfacing of all this potential. So it's like looking at, you know, it's like rewinding the clock on a jurisdiction like Peru back to the early 90s or, you know, uh, maybe Mexico in the 80s or Chile in the 60s.
0: Very compelling. And, of course, if you count in uh, David's track record, it uh, looks like there's uh, more to come in that front as well. And maybe just talk briefly just about extra strategy, Dan, about, you know, you guys, Augusta typically it's it's usually yeah. been a buyout. Just talk about your guys' Preferred exit strategy, I suspect you guys don't want to become a producing mining company, but maybe that's on the table as well. But talk about the strategy and the time frame to realize that.
1: So the, the approach at Augusta has always been to advance these projects as though you're going to build them yourselves. So to do high quality, really thorough uh, and conservative technical work that you can, you, know, you, you can be confident that you're able to actually deliver on and um and to move them forward on that basis, and the history has been, and certainly the experience has been that we've been able to exit um you know with the right buyer coming along with the right price um to exit these uh projects before we before we actually get into the serious uh you know capital spending of constructing one of these projects um and and that's and 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 that's uh and that's what you can do when you have a world class project you know that that doesn't that doesn't happen if you have a a, a subscale asset or you have a you know a, a less than robust asset in terms of the economics um, but if you if you if you confine yourself to these world class assets then that's the potential that you expose yourself to and certainly that's been the history with this group and there's no reason to doubt that um, there's similar potential here with this asset but as i said Our strategy is just to advance this in a technically robust fashion, you know, and we've done that to date and we'll continue to do so.
0: Yeah, I think that's the right way to go about it. Well, Dan, as you know, Solaris has run out of the IPO gate here uh, much higher. Why should investors consider a stake in Solaris now at current price levels? What would you say to potential investors listening?
1: well i think if you look at those results the reason the market is excited is because it sees the potential for this to evolve to become a truly world-class discovery something that's totally unique in in the marketplace as i said the potential to be the best asset uh, the best the highest grade largest uh, open pit copper asset that's not in the hands of one of the senior companies and we're at the very beginning of the surfacing of that value we've only released three drill holes we're at the beginning uh, or near the beginning of the Lausanne curve, where all the value is created uh, over the life cycle of a mining project. Um, and so that's certainly the, the reason why you would want to jump on board and expose yourself to RENSA. And I would argue, as you did earlier, that you're basically getting the rest of the portfolio for free. So this is a portfolio that was put together uh, by David Lowell, the world's greatest explorer, of his targets for future discoveries. Um, and you're getting that for free and you're getting the the, uh, the leverage of La Verde uh, which is comparable to other companies that that would be within the within the peer group on its own, but sits on the last page of our appendix in this company because of the quality of the rest of the portfolio.
0: And Dan, best way for investors to reach out to you and the company for more information?
1: Oh, just through our website. You know, so so we're very responsive. I mean, this is a company that's absolutely oriented to retail uh, investors, so we're very responsive. Um, I'm active on Twitter. You can reach me on Twitter. Uh, You can reach us through the website as well, and uh, you know we we try and respond to everyone. Uh, You know, obviously there's a lot of interest and a lot of inbound, but eventually you know we we get to every request that comes in.
0: Well, let's leave it there, Dan. It's been great to chat. Uh, Really appreciate you taking the time to introduce us today to the company, and good luck on progressing at Solaris.
1: Thanks so much, and thanks for having me.